I don't believe in fate. I don't believe that things happen for a reason, but I do believe in making your own luck. Welcome to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Connors. NetworkWise trains and educates individuals and organizations in the science and art of networking to accelerate sales, personal development, and career opportunities. In Conversations with Connors, I talk with a variety of highly successful individuals in order to gain insights on how they built, maintain, and cultivated their relationships in order to live a life by design, not by default. I've waited a year for this podcast, and it sure was worth it. It's a conversation with a friend, someone I truly admire and have the utmost respect for. This man is Chris Solars. By day, he's a wildly successful pension consultant. By night, he's a family man with three children. And the other waking hours, he can be found breaking all kinds of Guinness World Records. Chris is as humble as they come, but I'm going to do a little bragging on his behalf to give you a sense of the kind of guy that he is, as well as some of his accomplishments and accolades. Let's first start with his professional. He's Ivy League educated, holds a master's degree, has a CFA, a CAIA, and is a CPA. He's also spoken at over 100 conferences all over the world. As for his personal accomplishments... He's competed over 500 running and triathlon races all over the world. Overall winner of 50 plus local and international races. Nine times Guinness World Record holder. Most recently, he completed the Decaman, which we'll talk about during our conversation, but essentially is a 1,400 mile triathlon over 10 consecutive days. He's also in the midst of training for the Badwater Ultra Marathon across Death Valley. And by this time, or I should say by the time this airs, who knows what else he will have accomplished or has on his radar. The sad thing is, I'm not even coming close to doing him justice. You have to just go to the show notes to see all the others. It's just so darn impressive. Regarding our conversation, it's a must listen for anyone that's interested in looking to accomplish anything in life. Chris gives us a lot of takeaways that boil down to consistent themes that have attributed to his success in relationships sports, business, and life. Rather than delve into each topic, I suggest you pull up a chair, make yourself comfortable, and enjoy my conversation with my good friend, Chris Solars. Please tell me the story behind Shackleton. The story of Ernest Shackleton's 1915 Antarctic exploration is perhaps the greatest documented story of human survival ever told. Ernest Shackleton and a team of 28 men and he brought them down to Antarctica. He wanted to be the first man to walk across Antarctica, the full length of Antarctica. But it was almost doomed to begin with because before they even got to actual land, winter had come and their wooden ship was frozen into the ice. They waited it out. It was about six months, seven months. It finally thawed and the whole ship collapsed because the integration of the water into the wood and it collapsed. And they spent about the next six or seven months simply floating on ice. They were floating on ice in these little ice floes. They were at the mercy. And this was 100 years ago. They were completely freezing. This is a true story. It's a true story. They were sleeping on the ice when they had to wipe their ass. They wiped their ass with ice. They were eating penguins. A lot of them got frostbite, so they amputated fingers and there was no anesthesia. I don't know. Something like a 12 months later, 14 months later, they finally make land. But they landed on Elephant Island, an uninhabited island in the middle of the Pacific. And at that point, they had a challenge. They had to get to South Georgia Island, which was the closest 
area where they actually had civilization. And it was something like a thousand miles. And it was across the Drake Passage, which was the most dangerous open water in, in the whole world. So they went on these tiny little boats. It was completely freezing and it was very treacherous and it was arduous and they made it and they finally succeeded. And after something like 27 months, Shackleton saved all of his men. Not one of them died. And today he's known for leadership qualities. There's a Harvard Business School study about Shackleton and how he kept the men in line. And it was almost one of those, keep your friends close and your enemies closer because any of the dissenters he kept in his tent. And he had people every day, they went through a routine every single day. They swept the ship. They did these routines because they need to have something to occupy the time. So today, Shackleton means, I don't know, leadership and perseverance in the face of adversity and strength. And that's why I named my son Sebastian Shackleton Solars. Whew, man, see, it's people like you that ruin it for people like me. I just gave my <laughs> kids names because I like them. <laughs> you know? Man, there was some serious thought that went behind that. That's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> wow. Do your other kids have uh, storied names as well? Thank you, Adam. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Sebastian is my six-year-old son. Sophie Artemis Solars is my four-year-old Ooh, daughter. Artemis. All right. And Genevieve Minerva Solars is my two-year-old daughter. And Artemis and Minerva are both goddess names from Greek and Roman mythology. Yeah. Both are very significant in their own right. So we thought we'd give them a, something to almost to aspire to, something to guide them through their life. That's awesome. In the spirit of you being you. Ah, thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. There's so much that we can talk about, a lot of accomplishments. I know you're extremely humble and you don't want me to go through them, but there's some that I think are important because they represent who you are. I think they speak a lot about where you are today, what's gotten you here, your character, things of that nature. So I'm really sorry to put you on the spot. So you've broken a lot of Guinness World Records. You've accomplished a significant amount of feats. Is each drive to do each individual accomplishment different, or is this something more holistic? I think it's all part of the same thing. All of the marathons I've run, ultra marathons, and the Guinness records, it's really for fun. It's very tangible as well. Like training for a marathon and getting a certain time, or training for the 100-mile race and completing the race or getting a certain time, it's very tangible in the sense that you get out very easily the effort you put in. So it's been a lot of fun. I actually really love running. So that part is easy. And adding it into some of the tougher races just makes it more of a challenge. It feels much more rewarding when you actually finish these races. You're really discounting the effort you know, that, that goes into that. What about the sacrifices? What sacrifices have you had to give up in order to compete at the level that you're competing in? I think for me, there's three parts to my life, like three parts of the stool, my career, my running, and my family. And not in that order. If I put it in order, it's probably my family, my running, and my career. And not to say that my career is less important, because a lot of these things work together. And that's one of the interesting things, because I run with a lot of people that I work with, and I run with my wife. So everything is interconnected, but that's the balance for me, is putting those three pieces of the puzzle together. But what have you had to give up? I don't feel like I've had to give up much, Adam. When I have a drive for one of my races, it can become almost monk-like. I want to go to sleep at nine o'clock. I don't want to have a sip of beer or a scoop of ice cream. I want to do everything right. I feel like I'm a noble warrior who has this great event on the horizon and everything is trying to optimize for that one day. 
And it gives me this grand sense of purpose. I think the reason I've done so many events is because once that event is done, I can roll right into the next one. And I usually have many different events on the calendar already. And I really enjoy that. And I realize that this is all for fun because the Guinness records all have an asterisk. They're the Guinness world record and not the Olympic world record because there's always a little fun twist to it. But that's what makes it fun. And that's what makes it a little bit silly. And that's what keeps me going. It kind of is a nice balance, particularly to a stressful work life. Yeah. What are the biggest stressors at work? Like what keeps you up at night when it comes to that? So work, I think everything is great. The markets are very dynamic. And that's the best part about working in the finance industry is that everything changes. Correlations change, geopolitics change, demographics. The price of the S&P day after day changes from a number of different factors of all the buying and selling around the world. And it's this puzzle that's nearly impossible to figure out. So everyone who's related, everyone who's working in the financial industry who has some connection to the markets kind of feels the same way. And as the world is getting bigger and everything is becoming more interconnected, the puzzle is that much more challenging. So intellectually, I can be challenged and stimulated at work. And then physically, I can challenge myself. And that's kind of the magic of it all, right? Having the mind and body experience together and constantly challenging yourself, constantly evolving, constantly getting better. I think that's what life is all about. Yeah. How much planning goes into the events that you've got like lined up? So right now we're entering, well, by the time this comes out, it'll be a different story, but let's call it 2019. What's on the calendar for 2019? Actually, I have four very big events for 2019. I'm going to run my 14th Boston Marathon in a row in April. I'm going to run the hopefully Badwater Ultra Marathon in July across Death Valley. I'm going to do a race called Paris Brest Paris, which is the oldest bike event in the world. It's been around for three decades. It goes from Paris to Brest, which is 600 kilometers away, and then back in 90 hours. So a 750-mile bike race in 90 hours. And hopefully all those things go well. There'll be hopefully other 100-mile race that I'll squeeze in at some point in 2019. My God. Can we talk about the Decaman? Can we go into that? I mean, that's got to be, you just wrap that up. Can you- Just wrap it up. Go, uh, that's such an open-ended question, but I want you to just run with the Decaman. Yeah. So the Decaman is 10 Ironman triathlons in 10 days. And there's two different ways to approach this. You can do the one-a-day format, which is a 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike, 26.2-mile run each day for 10 consecutive days. Or they have the continuous format where you swim 24 miles, bike 1,100 miles, run 262 miles, and you have 13 days to complete that. So I chose the one times 10 day option. And the challenges were simply that you have to finish by 7 a.m. the next morning. So you have 24 hours to finish your full Ironman distance event before the swim starts the next day. So the balance was finishing it fast enough so that you get enough sleep so that you're ready for the next day, but also finishing it slow enough so that you don't overtax your body so that you can be also ready for the next day. And one of the biggest challenges was eating enough because normally when you're carb loading for one big event, you'll have your big meal the night before and you'll get ready for your event the next day. But on day five, you need to refuel from the previous days. You need to eat for that day and you need to get ready for the next day as well. So being able to stomach 9,000 calories a day is a training plan in itself. And I think all of my smaller races that I've done yeah. up until this big one were preparing me for that. I did my first marathon 21 years ago. I did my first Ironman in 1999. 
what is that, 19, 18, 19 yeah. years ago. So slowly but surely, I've been collecting all these race experiences of going further and further and further. What's kind of interesting, especially as I turn 40 now, is the acceptance of your age and what you've become and how things have shaken out. And you can either get faster at a finite distance or go further and further and further. And that's the interesting thing. You know, I can always shave off one more minute in the marathon. And actually, I hope that I can in, in Boston in April. But it doesn't truly motivate me that much because I know if I have the right conditions, if things are perfect. But what if things aren't perfect? If the conditions aren't perfect, is that a reflection of me that I didn't quite get that extra minute? It's not really, right? So at that point, when you accept that you've run your fastest times, you can always go further and further. Tell me about the conditions of the Decaman. The big challenge of the Decaman is everyone comes in knowing that it's going to be a 1,400 mile race. So you know it's going to be daunting. It's going to be day after day. And you also know that there's going to be curveballs. And our curveball was the weather. So the weather turned on day three. It was very cold. It rained for five days nonstop. And that's just kind of miserable. You know you're going to be miserable anyway because it's a miserable long way to ride 100 miles every day. But on top of that misery, you get this extra challenge. That was really tough. That made it tough. I actually wasn't ready for it because the weather the week before when I packed said it was going to be 60 degrees every single day. That's the weather it's in like New optimal. Orleans. That's like, it's optimal weather. Yeah. And it's partly why it was picked to be in New Orleans in November is because you kind of get the best of both worlds here. But that turned out to be a big challenge. So how do you mentally prepare? What's the difference between preparing for a marathon versus a triathlon versus the Decaman? What type of prep, physical and mental, do you yeah. have to go through? The marathon is a long way, but it's also a very short way. And in the perspective of some of these very long races that I've done, the marathon really is a race. And this, to me, was survival. It was a survival test for 10 days. When you're in a marathon, if it's three hours long, four hours long, five hours long, however it takes you, in general, you want to run perfectly even splits. You want to exert your energy equally so that every mile, hills adjusted, is the same. That's perfection in the marathon. If you get to the point where you hit the wall and you start to go slower, you've kind of ruined your race. There's no way that at mile 20 in the marathon, you have to walk a little bit. And then all of a sudden, 10 minutes later, you feel better such that you can go at a pace that more than compensates for the time you lost for walking. So if you take that mentality and you extrapolate it to longer races, which is what we tend to do, I think it's just a condition of human nature to extrapolate linearly how you feel right at this moment, then you get into a paradox, like a conundrum in the race. Because when you have these low points, which just happens in these ultra marathons, there is coming back from it. But if you extrapolate, I feel this crappy and it's been eight hours, by 10 hours, I'm going to feel much worse. You can talk yourself out of it. And a lot of times it has to do with the rhythm of your body over the course of a day. So this was a 10-day race. At certain times, I would get sleepy. I'd get tired in the afternoon. I'd get tired at night. Like after my normal bedtime, which is my body is used to, I would not be used to being up and I'd be really tired. And I'd think, oh, if I'm this tired, I'm not going to be able to get through tomorrow. But it's not true because when you wake up in the morning, your body is amazing. Like I don't think my body is amazing. The human body is amazing. And the preparation that one can put into is amazing, right? So I've been running almost every single day for 29 years. And perhaps that's one of the ways to approach finishing some of these races, like the Decaman, having had like consistency over time and really building up because I started off as a middle school cross-country runner into a high school cross-country runner, into a college runner. So I had had many years of 
You were running. in at Penn? You were on Penn. the team? You were for, yeah. Okay. How did that prepare you for what you're doing now? It was great. I mean, it was great preparation. That was the first, my freshman year at Penn was when I joined the cross country team and I only ran for one season, but it was the first time I ever ran 80 miles a week. 20 years later, I'm running hundred miles a week and I've run almost every day since. So cumulatively, I've kind of turned my body into a running machine, which is why I've been able to keep at it for after all these years. Yeah. I think what you do, these races, these marathons is really symbolic of the relationships that you've kept throughout these years. Do you mind talking about some of the people that some of the relationships that you've developed and what's your perspective on people and relationships in general? I'm sure you've put a lot of thought while you're running. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot about this. I mean, the importance of friendship. And I feel very, very lucky to be in this position, first of all, to be able to do these races because I have the time, I have the money and the energy to put in an extra one to two hours a day of exercise. Can right? I interrupt you for one second? Because I don't know that you're so special and that you have the time. I would actually say that you're so special and that you've been disciplined, created the habit, carved out the time versus me who's sitting on the couch having that ice cream. <laughs> so I'm sorry to cut you off, but I think well, that that's, you're not giving yourself the credit sure. that that's due. Thank you. And I see the benefit. And there's a very easy, obvious benefit that I, I feel so good the afternoons after I run that morning, right? It's the endorphin high that kicks in all the time. So every day I feel very, very good. It's part of my process. And it doesn't feel like it is a chore to run. A lot of people might say to me, I ran for a few months, I did a marathon, and then I fell off and I haven't run in three years. And luckily for me, I haven't felt that way because I've turned it into a part of my life. Like every week, I think about the week ahead. I think about when I can run, how I can fit it all in. And it makes me feel good. There's been a few times in my life when I haven't run, if I'm hurt or recovering or just a few down periods, and I haven't felt myself then. So I think it's therapeutic to run. I read something, if doctors could put in pill form the benefits of 30 minutes of exercise every day, it'd be the most prescribed drug in the world. And for beginning runners, what I've always recommended is just stay at it for 90 days in a row. Not even running, actually not running, just walking and jogging. And that's the mistake that a lot of people make is trying to go too fast because it's all relative. 10 minute mile is very slow for some and very fast for others and who cares? But doing that for 90 days on the 91st day, I think you'll get that running high that I get. That's great. And even in inclement weather? Oh yeah. I think if it's icy, I don't run outside if it's dangerous, but it doesn't get that cold in New York. When you hear Canadians talk about how, <laughs> where, how they run, it's all relative, but I quite enjoy going out in the cold. I live in Manhattan, close to Central Park. So I run in Central Park every single day. And in the winter, there are a lot of fair weather runners don't run. I give myself a little pat on the back. It feels very virtuous to be running when you don't see anyone else. And on the first day of spring, it's almost the park is overcrowded with yeah, runners. What are you doing here? Get out of my way. Get out of my <laughs> park. Tell me about the camaraderie amongst this network of oh. runners that you are around. And is it just, do you have a, a core set of guys and gals? And then I'm assuming that you do, but then what about when you take this out, you, I guess, extrapolate out into other states, countries? Oh, yeah. Talk to me about that. I think it's not a coincidence that my closest friends these days are all runners because we've shared these common experiences. And I have friends that I run with that I see more than my wife because I run every day for an hour and a half in the morning and I get to see them arguably more than I get to see her. And 
you can truly, truly build real connections through running and some of the shared commiseration of some of these struggles in these races. During the Decaman, it took 10 days. And I was marveling at the fact that I had the opportunity to meet new friends. At the age of 40, you rarely meet new friends anymore. And do you rarely get the chance to talk to someone for 20 hours in the first week of meeting them and truly form a bond in a lot of ways for life? So this was more of, even though it's an individual sport, at least in the Decaman, this was more of a camaraderie oh, sure. amongst each other, like a support system, if you will, I guess. Oh, yeah. There were like 30, 40 people in the race, and there were one or two that were trying to win. And everyone else is trying to survive. And not to say that the people who aren't trying to win are not part of the whole community. The shorter races can be very, very competitive. And the triathlons, the shorter triathlons can be very, very competitive. And I've gravitated to the longer ones where it's people don't care about the time. They care about the experience and finishing. Yeah. So what, what, tell me about that experience. Like you even said, you know, it's going to be hell. Yeah. Like, so what's the motivation to go to hell? <laughs> How do you do that? How do yeah. you how do you mentally prepare for that knowing that you are going to be in the depths of mental I don't even know how yeah. to describe that. I don't know. I was asking myself a lot that. <laughs> <laughs> Cuz you get to the point when you've taken time off of work, I had four people come down and help. My mother and three other friends came down and waited on me hand and foot because I need that help in these races. So I had all these people pulling for me and I had all of my friends were texting me and sending little messages the whole time. So you almost need all of that. I needed it. I was hanging on by a thread at some points in the race. Jesus. But you know, one thing I come back to is the fact that I'm so lucky to have this situation where my biggest struggle in life is the fake concocted race that I have to enter just to give myself a challenge that defines how people live around the world. This is struggle defines human existence. For me, I have to concoct these fake events. And that's very lucky, right? Because I can always pull the plug and say, oh, I want to go home. I want to see my family. And that's my biggest takeaway from all of these. It's so fulfilling to be able to do some of these races. Like the Decaman took me 175 hours and it gave me a lot of time to think, a lot of memories and a lot of shared experiences and a lot of friends. And I'm so thankful to my friends that came down, right? We bonded and our friendship grew as well. There's like a million and one reasons to do it. That's so, why I do it. So what were some of the things that you think about? And at what point does your mind just start going into, what do you do to pull the mind back? Like, hey, get back here. Come on, come on. Let's get positive. Like, because it's got to go into some tough places. Yeah, it did. Highs, I, lows, everything. I went to some dark, lonely places on the bike during the Decaman, but I still got three hours of sleep every night. Is that good? That's good. That's good. It's better than none. Yeah. Some people get none. And there was one race that I went through the night twice. So for 44 hours, I was up and that was called the fat dog, 120 mile run. And at the end of this run, yeah, that's during the Decaman or this is just, no, sorry, this is another race that I did last year uh -huh. and it was 44 hours in a row. And I think it was so daunting to think that you're tired after a few hours, you have to get through that night. One night is doable. And then to just push off the fact that you have to also get through the next night without sleeping. And by the end of the whole event, I was starting to see it was mild hallucinations, right? You start to see faces in the trees. And I was almost impressed with how creative I was because I'm seeing like Pikachu and different like random stuff in everything. There's a pattern, right? Your mind makes a pattern of all the things that it doesn't recognize. And as I'm just going through the woods, I'm just seeing all these amazing mm -hmm. things, but also being cognizant of the fact that I know that my mind is playing tricks on me. The dangerous point is when you get to the point when you have vivid hallucinations 
And that's when you take a nap. <laughs> but that's what happens in a lot of these races when you go through the next night. You start to imagine things that aren't even there. And it's also very dangerous. Yeah. Do you just stop and take a nap or like, how oh, yeah. That? Yeah. Yeah. People stop on the side of the trail or they stop at the little aid station. So, yeah, I've taken a nap. And that's one thing you can't truly plan, like how you'll feel. And you can approach it in one of two ways through brute force. You can just keep going through the event. But a lot of times, the optimal way is to take a short power nap. 20 minutes, 30 minutes can really rejuvenate you. When you wake up from the naps, do you feel refreshed or is it like, yeah. I don't know my, oh, you do. Okay. Oh, yeah. I know myself, I like play basketball the day before. The next morning I wake up and I'm hurting. So I can't fathom. No, but this is different because if your event was to play basketball for two days in a row, then, and you had your mindset going into that. And for six months you were thinking about this weekend of basketball, your second day would be okay. And I think that's the point. Like I'm not okay to get less than seven hours of sleep in general through the work week. I try to get eight to nine hours every single night. You're kidding me. And if I don't, I feel a little bit slow. But in race situation, this is like the- Adrenaline. You got the adrenaline and it's something special. So when the race starts, however, if it's 10 days long, you can finish it. When I finished my very first 100K in Australia in 2001, I took one step from the finish line and I took a nap for 20 minutes. I Come on. Yeah. It was a nice day and, and I was safe. And it was in a little park, but I truly had not one more step in me. And it was because the race was a hundred K long today. When I do a marathon, I don't want to run anymore. It's I'm done. I'm done for the day. And mentally I think, could I go more? No, I couldn't go anymore that day because I didn't prepare myself to go more that day. And that's something you always have to remind yourself. Like when you do these races, it's, this is the new race for today. It's much longer than the one yesterday. And hopefully you've exerted your energy equally. So instead of using 100% of your energy for 26 miles, you use 50% of your energy for the first 26 and 50% for the next 26. Yeah, it's amazing the preparation that goes into it. I love the saying, poor preparation leads to piss poor performance yeah. or failing to prepare is preparing for failure. There you go. But I mean, it sounds like you really have like a, a significant amount of planning yeah. goes into this. And experience too, because you can plan with a suboptimal experience level and, it, and you still fail. So knowing what you're capable of is fun and it's an evolution and it's a process. So just knowing I can sustain certain paces for probably 15 years, I wore a heart rate monitor every single time I ran and it really helped me dial in my exertion level just to understand your body better. So I think just knowing exactly how I feel at certain paces and having the experience of having felt that before at certain points in different races, you know, you can get through it. Like no one is ever truly impressed by something that they have done. You haven't run a marathon, so you're impressed by the marathon. I sure am. Well, I ran, my fastest marathon is 2.39. And I couldn't do that on my bike. <laughs> it's an impressive time to people who haven't run 2.39. The goalposts always change. Mm. Like I'm very impressed by people who've run sub 2.30, right? And sub 2.20. And I meet these guys and they feel the same way about the Kenyans who are running 2.08, right? It's, everything's relative. So what are the questions that you're asking other endurance athletes or whatever category that you're under? What is it if you were sitting there interviewing you, what would you be asking? And it all comes down to your training, your eating habits, and your sleep. Those are really the three pillars. And within training, you, there's a lot of subcategories because mm. there's training and there's cross-training. And what type of training is it? Interval training and distance, the number of miles per week, the number of recovery, all of these things. So that's what I would focus on. I love reading about the history of training, training for marathons. I love reading about what the best do. I think with anything in life, like a pretty good rule of thumb is start with the very, very best are doing. 
So I've read books on what the Kenyans do. They have a tried and true model. And likewise, I think that's a good general approach for anything. How do you accept excuses from people? Explain what you mean. Sorry to throw a curveball at you, but I have to think that your threshold for excuses has to be really low because you can't expect, I mean, for what you have to do, I know you're saying you don't sacrifice, but you sacrifice and you've a lot of things go into whatever it is that you're doing. And I'm not just talking about from a running standpoint to get to where you are in your career. Also, there is a lot of dedication, a lot of learning, a lot of studying, a lot of meeting the right people, having the right types of conversations. It wasn't easy. So I can't imagine that when you're coming across people and you're interviewing people, whether it's to hire them or if it's you're interviewing portfolio managers or yeah. whoever it is, and they've got some kind of excuse. Yeah. Did that explain? Yeah, I think yeah. that explains it. I can see right through yeah. a million excuses, right? But everyone can. I think what I'm most impressed with is passion passion for anything. It doesn't matter what someone else's excuse is about why they can't run. Like That's kind of their issue. I don't really concern myself with that. But what I do love is to hear people who have a true passion. It's great if it's the common denominator that is also my passion, which is running and triathlons. But I love hearing anything that people are so passionate about. I have a friend who loves hockey, like on the next level. Like Everyone is passionate about their sports team. And this guy is like a, a student of history. I just love hearing him talk about it. I don't want to have that passion of his, but I appreciate it. What are other things that you look for in people? So you like passion. What are other characteristics that when you're looking to connect with somebody yeah. that you're evaluating or looking for in them? If I were to hire them? No, I mean, just in general, just like as you're coming across, you're interacting with somebody, whether it's the first time or even getting to know them. What are the things, what are the characteristics that you're evaluating, whether it's loyalty, trust, passion, human interest, benevolence, whatever that might be? Are there any in particular that you're typically seeking? When you really get to know someone, you know what drives them, what makes them tick. And that's a powerful thing to know, to understand what really drives them. Is it their family? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it power? And a lot of them come down to the same basic principles, right? So it's hard to know that in people that you just meet, but you find common commonalities and you find if your kids are at the same school, and these are people I'm often meeting, or if you have friends in common and you have schools in common, there's a lot of different ways to connect with people. I think that's how we start relationships, right? Yeah. But are there any in particular that you're looking for that you gravitate toward? You know, you're very humble. You're very driven. So those are like certain characteristics that I would use to describe you. Are you looking for some of those same things in other people? Are you looking for the diversity? Or are you just looking for something that shines? And these, these are people somebody? that I would consider my friends. Like when yeah, I, when yeah, I, I guess so, or even just, yeah, not even just your yeah. friends or just, I don't know if there's anything in particular. And you touched on a good point. Some of these things that I, they're called triggers. If you know, there was a study and I wish I could remember what study it was, but they essentially realized that most people only know 15% of their friends' triggers or of all their friends, maybe there's only 15% of them, people that are close to them, that they know their triggers, what's important to them. And outside of just like saying like, hey, you know, I know Chris is an endurance athlete, but the trigger might be deeper than that. And if you know people's triggers, yeah. that if I knew your triggers yeah. better, that's something that would help me to really connect with exactly. you. Exactly. I think my wife is a lot like me. I mean, you start with my best friend and the closest person in the world to me. She's very humble. 
and very thoughtful. And I think we share a lot of those similarities. Where she's we, pretty driven too. She's a doctor. And very driven. What type and of doctor is she? She's a radiologist. Radiologist, yeah. Yeah. That couldn't have been easy to get there. No, exactly. So I feel like we have that in common, but the nice compliment is I'm more outgoing. Should be an introvert. I would probably consider myself an extrovert. And I think that works really well. So it's not quite that opposites attract in this case. I think we're very, very similar, but that slight difference is just enough to make it work out really well. And I think a lot of my friends have similar, I don't know, you almost don't get to pick your friends sometimes, right? It's true too. <laughs> I have some friends that are very, very different. So it's yeah. kind of hard to come up with like was there, overarching was there any, themes. Yeah. All right. I was going to say if there were any common threads yeah. that, or just I, things I think, that, let me ask you this, I'll turn it around. What are turnoffs? Well, I do have one common thread. I mean, the common thread of any friendship is the intensity of the relationship and the duration of that relationship. So many of my friends are people that I've known from when I was very young, from different schools. I have friends from all the different schools I went to. And of course, I keep friends from all the different jobs I've had. And if we hadn't worked together so closely, they might not have been a friend of mine, right? Like back at school when you had every option of every kid in the whole school to be friends with, probably they wouldn't all be the same. But that's how the world kind of gives you this lack of rhyme or reason to like everything lining up perfectly. So I think the common thread is that we've known each other for a long time, right? What do you do to stay in touch with some of the people that are close to you or kind of in your tribe, if you will? It's hard. I think it's really hard. And it's so much harder when you have young kids because for myself, I've realized that I'm not the center of the universe. And now my kids are to me. And that just is every ounce of free time is really for them. My own dilemma with some of the long races I do and my somewhat demanding job, it can be very hard because you're time away and you just feel like there's not enough time. You've said this many times, and we were talking earlier, that time is our most precious commodity. So how do you keep in touch with friends? Well, it feels very natural. I try to keep a very good network and I enjoy seeing my friends, right? And it's fun to reminisce about the high school days and the college days and the races we went on and we ran. So that's kind of a natural extension of who I am, my friends, because I have some really good ones. Well, I'll tell you things that you do, whether you're cognizant, well, you have to be some level of conscious being cognizant of this. Well, first of all, you're a connector. I've met a bunch of people and every single person is better than the next as a result of being in your circle of friends. So I know that that's something that you do. I'm pretty confident that you're conscious of this because of the connections that you've made have always been really thoughtful and strategic. Everybody that I've met has been fantastic. And I've tried to stay in touch with as best that I could anyone that you have. So that's an extremely thoughtful thing to do as a friend, make those good connections. Another thing that you do that I think is fantastic is you have a weekly newsletter Yeah, that to me, it's Bible. I get so many of these letters and I only read yours. So I read, and I'd love for you to tell everybody more about this letter that you put out, yeah. what it is, why you do it. And as you explain it, then I'm going to interject because there's a couple things that I really like about your weekly letter. Number one, it's extremely informative. It's done so well that if someone like myself can understand some of the really complicated global macro things that in systematic, even trading, whatever it is in the financial world that's going on, if I can understand it, then anybody can. So I think it's really good from that standpoint. It's extremely informative. It's also done, it's professional, but at the same time, it's really light. Whether you write in layman terms, that's one thing, which is makes it easy. But then it's you've got a really good sense of humor that's woven into the verbiage and the layout. And then it's just fun. What you've also done is you've got active participation. 
So I see when you tie something, an article that or a source, you give credit where credit is due, which I think that's genius. <laughs> you know, it's wow. just well, thank uh, you. Wow. Yeah. So go for it. I want to hear about that letter. Explain it to yeah. everybody what exactly it is and all the things that I just talked about. Sure. Wow. And now well, I'm just going to go you. take a walk while you. you know. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. It's become a passion project almost in a lot of ways. How long has it been going for? Ten years. It is ten years. Yeah, probably ten years since I started it modestly internally. And it's come with me to two different jobs now. And it started off really as a way for me to keep a level of discipline in that at the end of every week, I had met with so many different investment funds. Can I interrupt you for one quick second? You know what I didn't do is I didn't explain, I don't want to say your company or anything, but do you mind just educating everyone on what your job is, what you've done throughout the years? So I am a pension fund consultant and my day job is to meet different investment funds of which I've met over 3,000 over the past 14 years in the business and recommend them to pension funds or endowments and foundations as very solid investments that would be appropriate for them. So you're speaking with arguably some of the smartest people in the world that are putting trillions, is that a fair number? It's a fair number. Trillions of dollars to work Yeah, that is showing up in everyone's 401k or invested at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I'm sorry. So, yeah, so that's those a, are the brains of people that you're getting to pick. That's right. On a so daily that's a good basis. context. Yeah. And, and where I am, people are bombarding me with information. Everyone wants us to take a look. I have many, many meetings a week and I'm meeting some of the smartest people in the whole world. Some of the smartest economists, some of the smartest investors, some of the smartest traders, they all want our client's money. And I happen to be the guy who sits there in between these distributions. So I have a really fortunate seat to be able to see some of the most interesting investment ideas and trades in the whole world. And what I've done, and I've had this seat for 14 years. So what I've done over the years, and it's part of my own discipline is at the end of every week, I try to think, what did I learn this week? And I finished typing up all my notes because you need to type up your notes while you're still fresh. So by the end of that weekend, I have talked about all of the ideas that I thought were the most salient. So the most pithy way of summarizing that meeting I do in one line. And it's grown from there because then I will talk about a certain investment theme or I'll show a chart. Everything I read, I'm constantly thinking, is this worthy of my weekly email? Is it an interesting chart that I like? Yeah, because if I can interrupt too, it's there's no excuse for not reading it. It's a one-page <laughs> well, summation. Thank you. It's so flattering that you like it. And I've had some very good feedback. I didn't actually know that it would be so good for my own networking in that sense. So I put this together and every single week I go back to where I left off on certain blogs or make sure I read everything that I want to read. So I try to summarize the whole week in the global macro markets for the past week and add a lot of things that people would find funny and interesting and interesting links. And that's kind of the starting point. But what I've been so proud of is not having missed a week for pretend yeah i was gonna ask you about that too <laughs> yeah he's when like I, the deck man i couldn't when i got that <laughs> so when i got that letter after that i was like are you kidding me <laughs> yeah so on friday night of day two i finished at something like midnight and i was planning on doing an extra hour so i had that one was probably one of the weaker <laughs> ones i had pre-written a lot of it but mm-hmm. i still have to write what had happened in the market that week of which i didn't know until the market closes at four o'clock on friday so that day but again i had planned that that was the one night that I was going to have to do something else. But on all my vacations, I love it because it's just this discipline and people almost come to count on it now. Every single weekend, I, I send out this missive. Yeah. And the good thing is for my own networking has been 
that I also put my picture on there. And this was kind of a roundabout way. I didn't necessarily do it, but every single week, hundreds of people, many of them, all of my friends are reminded of me every single week. And a lot of them do click on it and read it. And they'll send me some links for next week. So it's a way of connecting to everyone in my network. Yeah, I absolutely love that. So yeah. there's some people that I know they do. Sometimes they just do quarterly updates just on their life. And they don't mean it to be egocentric or anything. It's just like, hey, we all go into different cycles of life. You know, like yeah. you said, especially when you have kids at young ages, like yeah. you're, you don't even exist. Right. So here's what's going. If you care to read, you don't have to, but I'll send, you know, not me, but there are a few people that I read. This is what's going on in their life. They're not in the social media. They're very private, but they send out a letter. This is what's going on here. If you care to read it, great. If not, life goes on. You're busy. That's why I'm busy too. So yeah, I really like that. And it's just the levity of it too. There's always just like some random you know, article. And, yeah. and who is AS? That's a burning question that I've had because that seems to be the biggest contributor oh, yeah. that makes the grade on, that gets oh. the credit. Can you disclose or is this a private source? He probably wouldn't want me to disclose it, but okay. he is a CIO of one of the very big pension funds in the country. You're kidding me. Yeah. Yeah. And he's sending me so many funny links. A Hilarious. Week. <laughs> yeah. AS, yeah. whoever you are, you know, <laughs> I'm, you know I'm reading you. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. So have you found that to be a good tool, I guess? Or what has that done? What has that letter? Do you have a name for it? My weekly macro yeah. email? Yeah. Is that just it? Okay. Yeah. It's probably my weekly email. Actually, what it's led, I think, indirectly or very directly has led to me being asked to speak at a lot of conferences. Mm. So I get asked at least a conference every month or so, sometimes two in one day. And I think it was the person there looking to fill some good speakers. And they had most recently seen me and they said, oh, we needed someone to speak about hedge funds. We needed someone to speak about new emerging hedge funds. We needed someone to think about quantitative strategies or global macro. I remember Chris had written about that. And I know him, he's capable. And that's it now. I've spoken at over 100 industry conferences over the past seven years. Talk to me about the conferences. Are you just kind of in and out? You speak and go? Or do you go there ahead of time? Are there certain people that you're looking to meet with? Or is it more people looking to meet with you? Well, unfortunately, it's not unfortunately, but many times everyone wants to meet with me. Mm -hmm. And they want to meet with me, not necessarily because they want to meet me. They want to meet the guy who happens to hold the keys to the castle, which happens to be me. <laughs> but they do. And sometimes I'll come off stage and there'll be a line of like a receiving line, like at a wedding. There'll be 10 people that want to give me their card and send me their stuff. And I'm happy to do it and read it. It's all kind of paying it forward in your terms because this world is such a small world. And these people, I've met many, many good people. But yeah, so sometimes I'm moderating a panel. Sometimes I'm speaking on a panel. Last week, I was the MC of a two-day event. So I introduced different people and I gave a little opening speech and just different things. I'm kind of happy to do whatever it takes. And I find like any invitation you get is you almost can't turn it down. I mean, this is my job is to network, right? And when I think about your business and how you talk about it, you talk about it very directly. And I think about it indirectly because of course, it's very important, but it's not something I'm actively doing because I'm not on the sales side. It's very obvious that in sales meetings, you need to have 200 meetings a year to get 10 interested clients to make three big sales, something like that. There's all kind of pyramid, sure. but I actually find it, I do the exact same thing. Like I go to many, many events. Like I almost never turn down going to an event because who am I to turn down going to, you know, a nice hotel where they have a nice reception. This just happens to be my job talking to different people. And sometimes for every Basically, every hundred handshakes I get, every card I get, there'll be a subset of 10 or three or two or one, right? And it all comes down to the closeness of the relationship. 
but we have something in common, right? Our kids go to the same school or we went to the same school or we both are runners. Whatever it is, like it usually takes a real connection because you're just meeting so many people all the time. And then those are the ones that become important to the business, right? Important to the next event we do or the next thing of interest. And it can be very interesting. This is kind of how the world works, right? How many people follow up with you? Well, say you meet with them and you know, say, oh, you know, let's let's have a meeting or let's do a call. So I happen to be in like a position of power where everyone wants to curry my favors. Gotcha. Okay. So most of them. Oh, they do. Okay. Yeah. So statistically 70% or 90, I always get it confused of people don't follow up. Right. So that's probably in like neutral. That would be a neutral. Correct. I mean, in a lot of ways, this is their home run. They meet the consultant, they get the card. This guy holds the key to so 50 different high potential. Motivation. So motivation. <laughs> 99% probably. Oh, really? I yeah. don't know, but yeah. for sure, something like that. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I throw that one, one out the window. I have, I, have, <laughs> I have one funny story. Yeah. Like right before everything was on our apps, I went to a conference in Miami and this was before everyone had iPhones. Maybe it was 2011 or 12. And we had this clunky app. It almost looked like a Game Boy. And it was like a new type of technology. And it was basically this, it was like, connect me to these people. So there's a thousand members of the conference and you can actually filter. You can walk into the room and everyone took a photo and you can say, who is from this firm and how many, what is the AUM of that firm? So who is the biggest allocator in the room? And you could sort and filter by all these things. It was very, very novel at the time. And then you can set alerts. Is that person within a hundred feet of you? So I was out for a run and I happened to also have this thing on me and I desperately had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so it's a big hotel and I'm at the far end of the hotel. And I like with you know, one of those where you have to go to the bathroom, you find it within, you're saved by the minute, right? I'm in there, taking my time. I come out, I'm in running clothes. I happen to have the app on me and some guy's just standing there. And he's like, oh, Chris. And it was really, really awkward. Oh, Chris is, oh, Chris, good to see you. <laughs> And I knew that he had tracked me down. Like he was tracking me. I know. Can I give you, oh, by the way, can I just give you the, can I give you my fun information? It was so awkward because I was so embarrassed from how desperate I had been like five minutes earlier. It's the last thing I wanted to talk about right then and there. But this is, I don't know, this is a funny story about how luckily I'm in this position where everyone is in, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and some of them are so excellent. You've gotten great, great guests and you're great at teasing out some real teaching moments for a lot of your listeners. But I don't necessarily think about it the same way, and I should, because networking is everything, right? It's half of your job. But I think conventionally, it's more people who are focused on sales and marketing that are thinking about networking. Or are actively thinking. Who are actively thinking. Or the people who don't have a job. That's when you need all your contacts is when you desperately need it. And of course, in advance is when you should be building your network, not after the fact. But you're cognizant of that. How much would you say the relationships that you've developed have contributed to your success? I guess everything. I mean, the relationships you make, because no matter who you are, you have a boss. Even the head of the firm is beholden to his clients. So everyone has a boss. And is that part of the game? To get your boss on your side, to understand him and form a relationship. Well, let me ask you this. Not necessarily even just your boss, because I get that people want to be your friend. But how many of these people have you been able to establish real relationships so you know you're getting real answers when someone's not just trying to sell you something? Or how is that relationship, that trust factor where you've gotten to that point? Yeah. I mean, dozens. I have dozens of industry contacts who may be considered, well, friend is a, we can define what that means, right? Mm -hmm. But after so many years, it's all blurred together now. Yeah. Because many of my friends are in the industry and vice versa. So I actually enjoy going to small group dinners 
And I enjoy talking to the people that I've known for years, right? Even if it's just for that little catch up on how you're doing and what's new in your life, because I have met so many people and you get to meet the same people. There's a lot of people and I think it's mutual, right? You are friends with them and both of you can help each other. Chris, you, you amazed me when we were at lunch at how much you knew about like, not just relationships, because I think some of it comes natural. I know a lot of it, you're conscious with your connections and just who you are, but your knowledge about networking, networks, tribes, things of that nature. What have been some of your takeaways as you've read about, like, I guess how networking or these relationships work? Anything in particular? I've done a lot of reading about this. It's very interesting. And certainly in advance of this, I was reading about this. I studied anthropology in college. What I think is interesting, one interesting angle about networking and friendships is that of Dunbar's number. And for to summarize, it basically says we can have at most in our social network of friends, 150 people that we can have an emotional connection to. We don't have the time or emotional energy to deal with more than 150 people. But it's a concentric circle of four adjoining circles. So at the very, very close inner circle is your five closest friends. On the next circle is about 15 people. And these are still the people who you are emotionally connected to, people that you care about, people that you would call in an emergency. And the next circle is 50 people. This is who you might invite over to a party if you had at your house. And 150 people are still friends. And a lot of this is very dynamic, right? Over time, people come in in and out of your life. And since friendship is a function of duration of the longevity of knowing someone and the intensity of that relationship, the people whom you shared these experiences with in college are still in your network, but they're no longer in your closest five. They're in your 50 and perhaps eventually they'll be in your 150. But I think it's interesting to think about what networking means from your perspective, from your business, because a lot of your listeners are thinking about networking, not about getting new friends. They're thinking about networking from the perspective of getting a new job or making new sales. And you're not necessarily getting them, you're getting those from your acquaintances. So what's interesting when I was thinking about how to help your business, it's not about necessarily strengthening friendships. It's about strengthening weak ties. And one of the things that I do, we talked about was try to go to every event I can, right? Be very social and meet a lot of people because in the end, it always is a numbers game. I don't believe in fate. I don't believe that things happen for a reason, but I do believe in making your own luck. So can I interject for a quick second? It's funny that you mentioned, so they've done studies on luck and people Mm -hmm. that are well networked have significantly higher rates of quote unquote luck. That's right. You're creating it. You've created, you've given yourself more opportunities, getting back to your numbers game, just like anything else. It's you almost like driving, you know, you drive enough, you're bound to get a ticket because you're driving more. Well, the same thing, if you're well networked and you've got lots of people in your circle, those are more opportunities for good things to happen. That's right. Yeah, really. Oh, so such a cool study they did on this. It makes you, if not, you'd want to go out and just start making friends. That's you right. Know, just after that. And the Dunbar, the 150, it's really interesting to elaborate a little more. It's been, like you said, from anthropology as a result of these studies, it comes back to tribes. That's and right. And it's all, and that's why you hear the term like, oh, it's your tribe. Right. But it's true that the, all these villages, it, it's always around 150 people. And it doesn't matter where in the world. That's right. Most of these tribes 
when you broke them down as they did the history, it came That's down right. to about 150 people. There are arguments out there that now the number's bigger because the brain's evolved and things have changed and you've got technology and things of that nature. So I think the most recent argument they're saying is roughly it's 250 now. I see. But 150 that Robin Dunbar, his whole yeah. thing is yeah. tried and true. Yeah, and you see Amish communities are plateauing at about 150. Mil- military units have been like maximized at about 150. Hunter-gatherer societies were all about 150 and there's something magical to that. And it's so misleading now in the age of social media when we have 1,000 links on LinkedIn and we have 500 friends on Facebook because these aren't truly your real friends, but they are your acquaintances. And it's your acquaintances that enable you to perhaps introduce you to the person who has the job that you want to get. So like there's two different things that we're talking about or two different themes from a lot of your other podcast guests that you've had. One is about like the nature of friendship and reaching out to people and building it before you need it. And the second is like maintaining, strengthening weaker connections that you have because it's these like 150 plus, if you have a thousand people on LinkedIn, wouldn't it be nice to be fresh with 850 of them because these 150 friends are your friends. You can already reach out to them and that's the beauty of friendship, right? It's almost, you do something for them, you owe all your friends a favor and they kind of owe you a favor. That's how it works. doesn't matter if I haven't texted them on their birthday, but 151, plus, or maybe 251 plus, those are the ones that take working, building, adding to it, and also keeping it fresh. And that's the real challenge. Yeah. That's again, maybe what I was alluding to earlier. And like, what do you do to build the relationships amongst other people that you've met? Anything in particular? Again, the newsletter, hey, you know, here, sign up on the newsletter or- Right. So the newsletter I kind of backed into, I didn't necessarily actively think this is how I can reach out to a thousand people at once and keep my name fresh in their mind. That was the beauty of it. That was me making my own luck Hmm. in one sense. Because it's about how to network is really, it's about providing value. Right. The more value you provide to people, the more valuable you become. Yeah. So, and there's so many different ways that we can provide value. Right. So this is a great one. I mean, it's just, I get to see your smiley face. <laughs> I get to read, you know, I get to learn yeah. and it's just there. It's consistent. And that's the other thing about with relationships too. And again, this is just more of like a metaphor for them, but to show up, to be there, the yeah. consistency, providing value. Yeah. I guess when I take it one step further, as I've been thinking about this, why do I send it out so consistently? And why am I trying to network more and more? It comes down to realizing that I'm replaceable. I'd like to think that no one can do my job like I can, but that's simply not true. If you're not growing, you're stagnating. And the industry is always evolving too, right? So you want to know more people, you want to be out there more, and you want to do more. So it's almost a fear of loss that drives me to network. So I'm thinking of starting my own rival company called Network for Fear, right? It will be a complete rival to your network wise. (laughs) Whatever it takes, my goal is to get people to be more proactive in their relationships. And if it starts with fear, I'm fine with that if that's how it starts, because what will happen is you will reap the benefits of what happens when you build some of these relationships. And then your fear is that you'll stop having these great relationships. So you'll continue. That's right. So, yeah, exactly. You know, so you get a little taste. And the two biggest drivers in life are fear and love. If it starts with fear, I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah. So you've got a bunch of races going coming on down the pike. You've got lots of conferences. Are you speaking at anything anytime soon? Yeah. Starting in January, I've got a busy docket already. I think I have one or two in January, one or two in February already. Wow. And yeah. then do you get paid for these? Or these are no. things that they, okay, they just want you to be the keynote. Yeah. And then how much preparation goes into these? Oh, lots. 
Mark Twain has a quote. He says, it takes two weeks to prepare an impromptu speech. So I get up there and I might be the moderator of an energy trading panel. And, you know, I've been following the markets for over a decade, but on that particular day, I want to peak and I want to know all of the curves, where everything is trading, how people made money over the years so it can just flow naturally. And then the next week I'll be doing emerging markets kind of speech and I'll want to know all about what's happened in 12 different countries. So it takes a lot of effort, but I love it because that's what it's all about in one sense is being able to get ready for, it's like why I like to do my races, right? You're optimizing for that one day, all the preparation gets ready and it all happens in one hour or 10 days, whatever it is, you're getting ready for the big event. And I think that's what I really enjoy. I enjoy the process. I enjoy the process of training and getting ready for it almost as much as I actually enjoy the race itself. That's kind of like the gravy. They the say icing about on the life, cake. you got to enjoy the journey. Yeah, you the know, journey. The journey more than the outcome yeah. that's involved. What about, oh, actually, you know what? I owe you, thanks to, you know, I know you're a voracious reader, and it was you that turned me on to audiobooks. Oh, great. Not just, no, no, no. I listened to audiobooks, but you taught me how to speed up an audiobook. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So thanks to you, I'm a 1.4 on Audible. I think okay. you're faster than that, right? Yeah. I'm more of a 1.8, 1.9 guy. Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, I have to thank my friend Ivan for turning me onto it. So a shout out where shout out is due. But I think for anyone listening, like- How that, can you comprehend it that? So I guess that when everyone's listening to podcast or audio- Hopefully they're listening to us at one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would say listen at 1.25 because you can't, it's a little bit faster. That's uh-huh. the starting point. And that's the gateway drug, uh-huh. 1.25. And slowly but surely you creep up. So I listen to The Economist, which is perfectly read. So if it's an audiobook, I can do over two. But if it's spoken, if it's unscripted, and if it's a podcast, you miss a little bit. So you have to accept that things are going to be yeah. a little bit like chipmunks. And you accept that you miss a few words. And you can always rewind if you feel it. But it's kind of like skim reading. It's a skim reading equivalent of listening to podcasts. And I feel so much like I got so much more done listening to a 60 minute podcast in 30 minutes than I would have hearing the whole drawn out thing in 60 minutes. Yeah, that's amazing. I don't know if this happened to you or happens to you, but the drawback of this, and I'm only a 1.4, is that when I got into meetings, like business meetings, I was getting so frustrated. Oh man, this is my life. experience the same thing. Come on, get to the point. (laughs) I want to fast forward this guy. Yeah. Or, you know, I get it. Yeah, and then you're dealing with an industry where people are not, the fastest speakers because you're they're very slow and deliberate sure. and drawing. How do you deal with that? Well, it's the same thing about being a good interviewer, right? And you can politely cut people off. Thank you. And your time is precious, right? And luckily I'm not I truly don't abuse this, but you know, if someone comes in for a meeting with me, I want it to be efficient and I don't want to waste my time. So I do. I can stop people and say we need to move on. I got it. Yep. yep. Thank you. Or the flip side of that is to slow them down and say, that was really interesting. Can we talk more about that and more about that and more about that? And that's almost the trick I use to truly understand if people know what they're talking about. Because I'm trying to ascertain if they're truly the best investor in the world. We can invest with anyone in the world. Why are we going to invest with you, AC Capital? Mm. So when you say that, I want to drill down a little bit further and a little bit further. And I don't know the answers necessarily, but I'll know the confidence level, and I'll know if you know the answers. Yeah, they might have a pitch set, but if you keep asking. That's right. You keep, <laughs> keep asking. <digging. laughs> and that's kind of the art of, because a lot of times I do what you do in a different form. Like I interview people for one hour and I have to understand what kind of investor they are. 
I have to understand how they'll react if the markets crash tomorrow. Are they going to sell everything or are they going to be calm and lightheaded, level-headed? So it's very hard to get all of that out of uh, an hour meeting. And of course, I can have 10 one-hour meetings, but at the end of the day, 10 one-hour meetings with somebody is still not a lot when you're entrusting them with people's fortunes. Yeah. How do you flush that out? Because you're essentially, anyone who's getting into your door is pretty impressive in their own right. Yeah. I mean, that's just a, a no, Fair. you know. Yeah. So then how do you really get that half of 1%, these top, top, what are the things that are separating them? I don't think anyone truly can consistently pick the winners every time. I think what I'm good at, and I think people who've been in the industry for a long time are good at, is avoiding the losers. You avoid, cut off the 25% tail distribution of the people who really don't know what they're doing, who got in my door, right? So then we're left with, call it two thirds of the people. And I'd like to think that I can pick the top half or the top quartile, but it's not easy. Yeah. How have your relationships, the skills that you've honed, helped you to be able to flush out some of these people, whether it's through questions, making people feel comfortable. What is it? Is there any magic to this? Yeah. Maybe you make people feel uncomfortable. I don't need them to be comfortable. I need them to tell me the truth, mm. how they see it. So I think it's a very direct line of questioning. I just have my bullshit radar. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't want to hear any fluff. Why did you make that decision when you turned the portfolio around? And again, I'm not the best at this in the world, but I've certainly am better than I was 12 years ago and five years ago and two years ago. I've gotten very good, I think, at understanding how what makes people think because it's their, they have so much power. They can invest in anything they want, right? And how do they take the whole investment world and come up with the best opportunities? And what are the best practices? You come up with what are the best practices and you see, does this guy fit in the model that I know that all of the successful investors I've ever met fit into? And I would say, your probably next question is, what is that model? And I would say, probably the biggest one is consistency and discipline. They do the same thing. They look at the same indicators. They look at the same metrics. They're trying to evaluate things in a systematic, unemotional way, almost like a quantitative process. It's, an it's almost like a machine. Yeah. You turn yourself into a machine and you don't care if you made $10 million in the fund or lost it that day because nothing has changed. The market has changed, but it doesn't mean that the fundamentals have changed. It doesn't mean that the story has necessarily changed. It just means that now there's a new price. Maybe that's a new opportunity. So I look for its experience and its consistency and its discipline. Have you noticed any common threads among some of the top performers? Whether it's, I don't know if it's the schools they went to, the types of backgrounds that they've had. Is it coming from whether it's the portfolio managers they've been trained under? Is there anything in particular? The easy answer would be, that they all went to the best schools and they all went to Ivy League schools and they all worked for Goldman Sachs and they're all white males. I mean, that's who is actually successful. And I think it's the opposite. It's like the diversity of experiences that allow people to be in these positions where they're thinking a little bit outside the box or understanding the world as it looks in a slightly different way. So I think probably the one consistent thing that I would say is certainly not where they went to school, but that they've had experience doing that. And they've lost big. You know, they've already had their drive. All right, that's where I was going to go with this. And that's where you get humility, right? So if you look at two different investors and they both have 10 years experience and one of them has already lost his 40% and come back and live to tell the tale, then I feel much more comfortable because he knows what it's like. And one interesting follow-on, to interview them at the worst, the time when they've lost the most money for clients, when they've lost their friends and family's money, they've lost their own network, it's down 50%. 
that's when you really understand who they are. And that's when you want to interview them. Yeah, Do you have any stories of anyone in particular? You don't have to say the name of someone that has kind of been through those trials and tribulations and been around to fight another fight? I think I probably have a lot of them, but no real sensational story. But I remember when one hedge fund guy completely flipped it around on me. Like it was 2008 and I had just been married. I was just married and I was fidgeting with my ring. And the question I asked him, you have $50 million of your own money in this fund. Like, why are you meeting with a 29-year-old kid? Why go through all this? What are you doing? Like, why don't you just enjoy your life? That's a fair question. Like, what are you doing running this fund? And he just like nailed exactly me. And he was like, I see you fidgeting with your ring. You're probably just married. You're probably just starting. You're thinking about buying your first house. Am I right? And I was like, wow. And he was exactly right. And he says, for you, it's all about the struggle. You're struggling to build your career, to build your family. And for me, I'm 50 years old and I've already done that. And I want to feel it again. I want to feel that passion again. So I'm starting a new fund with my money and it can never feel like the first time, but that's what gets me going. And I was like blown away, especially when someone reads your mind like that, right? Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. yeah. What about like from the relationship standpoint, do you know that some of the portfolio managers that you're sitting with, how much they're relying on the contacts that they have to get the information, to test the signals that are the softer signals that are out there, not the quantitative stuff. How much does that play in? I know it used to be huge in the markets. I don't know how much that is now, especially with all the systematic and algorithmic trading that goes on today. I mean, it's still very much a relationship business. Reg FD in 2002 made it very, very clear. I think what you're asking about is like the line between material, non-public information. Correct. And, like, where's and, that and Chinese wall or, yeah. Yeah. My specialty within this is, so this, the SEC looks after specific companies and they're talking about specific companies where you might have an edge. And what I think is so fascinating, and which is what I've been drawn to, is the guys who are looking, they don't care about specific companies. They're looking from the top down. Mm. They're looking at the whole world. And they don't just invest in US equities, they invest in any equity index in the world. They invest in any bond, any currency in the world, any commodity, right? Anything where they see the best opportunity. So imagine you set your starting point, you look at anything that's down 50% from where its most recent peak was. And then you dig in there. Like that's the starting point for many of these investors. Wow, there could be a real buying opportunity because people start to sell because they're afraid, right? It's all driven by fear and greed. So they sell and then that, that begets more selling. And now all of a sudden for the smart investors who are able to step in, who have the dry powder, the capital, they're able to step in. So maybe that would be a starting point of your analysis to look at everything that has been down from a great 50% peak. You know, Warren Buffett has the adage that you should sell at the sound of trumpets and buy at blood in the street, right? And that's it. So that's not necessarily all what they do, but I think that's a great starting point. They're thinking about not just the company fundamentals, about specific companies, because that's a whole nother edge in, yeah. in the markets. But my passion for the markets is much bigger than that. And it's kind of top down. It's thinking about the Fed that's about to raise rates for the ninth time since 2015 next week. And the Brexit meeting that was canceled for today and the OPEC meeting that happened last week and these types of things because you can't truly have an edge in predicting if the euro is going to go up or down next year, but you can have a very educated guess. So I guess that's a long answer to say there's not the same type of borderline misinformation and insider trading mm. in some of the hedge fund strategies that I cover. Yeah. Give me something that's hard for you to do. 
Like, for example, for me, it's hard to relax. Is there anything in particular that's challenging for you? I think it's hard for me to relax too. I think running really helps. But to truly, truly be relaxed, I don't feel like I live a life of leisure. I work maybe 50 hours a week. I see my family. And if I ever had any time when I'm up early, I'll use it to run an extra 30 minutes, right? And I'll just kind of fill in the spaces perfectly, meeting with other friends or it doesn't feel relaxing like I have an unscripted day. I never have unscripted days anymore yeah. the way I did. And in a lot of ways, the kids have given me like more reason to be more disciplined in a good way. Like I run my best races because I've been trained better because they wake up at the same time every morning and I have to be back home ready for them at that time. So there's no, I can't run later in the day. Whereas I remember when I was younger, I would wake up maybe late on a Saturday and oh, I'm a little bit hungry. I wanted to go for my long run. Oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's eight o'clock and it's time to go out to dinner and you've missed the whole day. Mm. That never happens anymore in a good way, I think. But probably it is. It's hard for everyone to relax, right? So okay. many things going on. Do you still run to work? Yeah. You do? You yeah. Do. How many pairs of sneakers are in your office? Oh, many. Better question is how many shirts and pairs of pants and all my suits are there. So as a, like a way to purely optimize my time, I live... I guess, two and a half miles away from work. So in the morning, I listen to podcasts and I walk to work. And after work, I change and I run home through Central Park a little bit of a longer way. And I just, I love it because first of all, I'm close enough to work to actually do this. It wouldn't work for many people, but I don't have to have the downtime of being in the subway or waiting for a subway that might be slow. And I don't give myself any excuses. You know, if it's raining, then I have pants at work that I'll change into and I'll wear just a pair of pants that can get wet or a pair of shorts and I'll change when I get to the office. So there's no reason, unless I'm truly running late, there's no excuses. I like how you have everything thought out. Like you're so many steps ahead. Have you always been like that? Yeah. I think I've always kind of planned myself this way. I don't know. Yeah. It's how I kind of run my life. Yeah. That's impressive. Run your life. No pun intended. Yeah. No pun Maybe intended. that'll be the catch of the thing, <laughs> how he runs his life. Well, I know you've got another meeting to get to. What did I not ask you that I should have asked you today? What didn't we cover? I think we covered it all. Yeah, this we did cover great. a lot. We covered a lot. Yeah, we did cover a lot. Thank you for coming on. You're awesome. I can't wait to just go through your introduction because that's going to be fun. You're too humble for it to be here. So I'll do that when you're not here. Well, thank you, Adam. It was great to be here. Chris, thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Connors, a network-wise podcast. If you or someone you know is looking for a career change, building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to networkwise.com to gain access to a plethora of resources to help you build your networking skills and community. Those who are ambitious will network. The ones who succeed will network wise.